All right, here's a teenager who survived nearly two years in Auschwitz, which was almost unheard of, and escaped. All the while, he was dreaming of and planning, trying to figure out a way to get out of this death camp. But beyond that, it wasn't just about survival. It was about telling the world what he had seen. And that was just such a remarkable story. And the fact that he did all of that before his 20th birthday, I knew that there was something there that would fit what I do, which is narrative nonfiction for, for teenagers. From NCPR, this is Northwards. Stories by and about people in northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support for the Northwards podcast comes from the J.C. Steiniger and M.E. McDonald Charitable Fund at Adirondack Foundation in support of the Adirondack Foundation, building stronger Adirondack communities. When my daughter was 11 years old, we took her to the museum, the now former museum about journalism and the news business in Washington, D.C., And the exhibit she was most excited to see wasn't the one where you got to be a TV anchor or the section of the Berlin Wall on display. It was getting to see the Pentagon Papers, the history of the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War that was released to The New York Times in 1971 by Daniel Ellsberg. And if you're wondering why an 11-year-old girl would be especially interested in the Pentagon Papers, the reason is Steve Schenken. Specifically, a book Schenken wrote about Ellsberg called Most Dangerous. My daughter is not the only person taken with Schenken's prose. His books about subjects ranging from Jim Thorpe to the race to build the first atomic bomb to Benedict Arnold have millions of readers, mainly kids and young adults, but plenty of older readers, too. And now I am one of them. Schenken, who lives in Saratoga Springs, has a new book out that tells a story of World War II and the Holocaust that most of us have somehow missed. The daring escape by two men, one a teenager, from the Auschwitz concentration camp and how their eyewitness account of the camp's mass murders saved the lives of 200,000 Hungarian Jews. Steve Schenken joins us from Saratoga Springs. Welcome. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, So I I hope you don't mind if we start at the end of this latest book, the the author's note and the hike you made across southern Poland into Slovakia. What did getting to walk in the steps, almost literally walking in the steps of the people that you were writing about, mean to your connection with the story? Yeah, it was a huge connection. And I mean, I write nonfiction, so that's obviously means a lot of research. And sometimes it involves going places that are in the stories. I don't always get the chance to go everywhere. But for this one about these uh, these young Jews who escaped from Auschwitz and then made this incredible march across southern Poland, I said, all right, I have to do that. I would have felt remiss. I would have felt as I go out to talk in schools and other places about the book, I just felt like I needed to be able to describe that as part of the process of learning, even if it didn't affect a word of the writing. It did, though in subtle ways, because, of course, I can't say that what I saw was exactly what they saw. My experience was nothing like anytime I got tired or said, gee, it's hard to walk 20 miles a day. I would laugh at myself and say, you know, this is ridiculous. But seeing that landscape, making that connection, feeling the mountains, the slopes, even just the size of the mountains allowed me to know it in a, in a much deeper way. And I, and I think it did affect the writing, if only to enrich my understanding of of that experience, which is at the heart of the story. I, I gather there's like a whole group of people that that uh, that does this hike every year. 
so yes, there's a group of people, they've been doing it about 10 years and I just saw it online. It, it looked fairly tiny. And I just said, I just got to go. I, I'm not going to even try to find out too much about it. They're doing it. I'm going to sign up and go. And, and yeah, there were about, I don't know. We actually counted off each day. I was 32. Treat Sattva. Any Slovak speakers out there? <laughs> they can check my pronunciation. <laughs> I was 32. So there were like 35 of us and, and all from the Czech Republic and Slovakia, by the way. I was the only American, which I, did, I didn't know going in, but everyone was very welcoming. And yeah, they've been doing this as a way of honoring these very, well, I was going to say very famous. They're not very famous. Even in Slovakia, I don't think they're, they're very famous. These heroes who escaped from Auschwitz and made the first eyewitness report of what was happening there. So they, this is their small way of remembering and honoring that. Yeah, the 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 people at the heart of this are not that well known. How did you get there? I mean, not not literally. How did you travel to to Poland and Slovakia? But but what was it that brought you to the story of Rudy Verba and uh, and Alfred Wetzler? It's it's what I do almost all the time. It's kind of look for stories. I mean, I write young adult nonfiction, so you know I'm looking for stories all the time, and I'm not literally finding book ideas every day, but I just read with that kind of curiosity in the back of my mind, huh? You know, that notebooks are great for that. You write something down. Rudy Verba's story comes up. It'll be, a, there'll be a little bit about it in, in kind of general books about the Holocaust sometimes. I mean, there's so much to say, he might not make it in, but he also shows up sometimes on the list of the greatest escapes of all times. And that's something that just catches my eye. As a fan of true stories, I've always loved, give me an escape tunnel, you know, something with the Berlin Wall. I love that kind of stuff. And, and his story shows up there and I it piqued my curiosity. Even as a Jewish kid, I, I never heard the story as a kid. It would have meant a lot to me as a teenager. I mean, how many times can you read about Sandy Koufax? <laughs> you know, but I never heard of it. So, you know, it's, you hear of it one, once, it kind of simmers away and you hear again and you start to say, I'm going to look that up. And so, yeah, it really just began with all I knew. All right, here's a teenager who survived nearly two years in Auschwitz, which was almost unheard of, and escaped. All the while, he was dreaming of and planning, trying to figure out a way to get out of this death camp. But beyond that, it wasn't just about survival. It was about telling the world what he had seen. And that was just such a remarkable story. And the fact that he did all of that before his 20th birthday I knew that there was something there that would fit what I do, which is narrative nonfiction for, for teenagers. Aside from the fact that, that your primary audience is teenagers, why do you think this specific story uh, is so important for them to understand at this point in, in time? I mean, it's an important part of history. There are, and you can say that about many parts of history that, are, that aren't as well known as they should be. But what I found, I've I've gone to some schools already. The book's pretty new, but I've been to some middle schools and high schools. And if I begin by saying, okay, this is the main character in this book is a 17-year-old who was thrown into and then escaped from a Nazi concentration camp. That's already a little deep into the story for some, most students. And it's not their fault that they haven't learned about this part of World War II. Or if they had, it was a sentence in a textbook, maybe. And I, by the way, I should I should confess, I used to write history textbooks. So I know <laughs> that even if it were in there, nobody would remember it because the books are so boring. <laughs> that they don't really teach anything, at least not to me as a kid. 
So the best way to, to introduce this big piece of history, which is important for everyone to know, is through a story. That's my that's my approach. So if you have what is an incredibly engaging, exciting, high stakes survival and escape story, what a great way to tell a piece of true history. Hopefully you get hooked on the story and the characters and you even forget it's uh, nonfiction necessarily. It could be it could be a novel, it could be a movie, but you're drawn along in the story and then by the end you realize, wow, look at all this look at all this information that I learned. So that that's basically what I try to do with all my books. Well, yeah, I mean, do you, do you worry in a story like this, given what was at stake and given what you're writing about? Uh, do you feel ever feel? Do, do you feel guilty about about making it too exciting? Hmm, I I thought about that actually, and and normally, of course, that's what I try to do if I'm writing about a Cold War spy yeah. story or the making of the atomic bomb. Or <laughs> that, that's uh, there's no such thing as too exciting, especially as we said with history where. Some students have already been beaten over the head by these textbooks, and oh no, I don't want to read. So, I thought about that. I did. I don't. I'm not sure what the exact right answer is, but I, I also just feel like sometimes there are true stories that you just don't want to embellish. And, and my language, I'm not a wordsmith necessarily. I mean, I'm very straightforward in the way I tell the story, and I feel like it doesn't need any. It doesn't need any fancying up. His story, just as it is, is. It's, it's what editors, you know, editors, every writer will have heard this from an editor. You've got to raise the stakes. You've got to put obstacles in front of your character. You've got to create more danger for them to overcome. And with Rudy, you really don't. I mean, you really don't. Just tell the story. So the excitement in it is is from him. It's what he did. It's what he was up against. And the fact that not only did he not give up, but his escape plan this is what this to me is the most remarkable part of the story because he was still a teenager. It wasn't just about surviving. Of course, he wanted to survive, and he had already escaped from another Nazi camp before this. But he evolved over those those two years to to take on a much much bigger mission, which was to tell the world. He couldn't possibly know what the world knew or didn't know from within the camp, but he was determined to to make this really detailed eyewitness. Account. So I feel like there's that page-turning excitement in it. Yes, I do want that, but I don't think it belittles or trivializes in any way what he did. At least I hope not. Maybe the maybe the the pretext of the question was wrong because you didn't make it exciting. It just it it, it was inherently exciting. That's that's what I think, and and I think that's right because sometimes, like we say, the story is just is just so great. I don't take any credit for that. I mean, I did a lot of research. I hopefully wrote it in a in a way that's very clear and and fast paced. That is the story is the star. You talked about how uh, Rudy had already escaped from one Nazi camp and and now he'd been at uh, Auschwitz for for two years, which I think in the language of the camp made him an ancient prisoner, as you described it. Um, I wouldn't call what he had going for him good fortune, but he does seem to really use his wits in a way that's that's remarkable. Yeah, you realize, you read that in any account of anyone who survived for any length of time in a camp like that. You need such a combination of things every day. And one of those things is good luck. But you're right, also this resourcefulness. You need to learn the rules really fast. Anything can get you killed at any moment. So you need to learn what those things are and how to stay, basically stay out of out of the way, how to not be noticed. And And he learned that really quickly. He was young and strong, which, of course, really helped. But, yeah, there's luck involved that 
the other element is you, at some point you're going to need someone to step in and save your life. And, and that has to happen multiple times because you're going to get sick at some point. You're going to be starving at some point. You're going to attract attention from a guard in the wrong way at some point. And you're going to need those little bits of someone else stepping in and also luck too. And so, yeah, he had this he, determination to do what he ended up succeeding in doing, but there was definitely, it was definitely not determined. You know, there was no set path to that. He needed to get lucky in a lot of, a lot of ways, a lot of times. And he was, he was the first to, to describe those instances in his own, his own writing. Yeah. So what was the turning point for him? Why did Rudy know at a certain point that he had to actually figure out the time and the means to escape when really no one else had had figured it out at this point? You know, so many people had been kind of uh, had these brilliant ideas and to a man, uh, they were all brought back dead and made an example of. Yeah, he saw other people, friends of his even try to escape and that's these caught them and brought yet like you said brought the bodies back put them on display in a very gruesome way to discourage any attempts so he knew that the plan had to be incredibly good and again this is one of those things that this is kind of a if you were making a movie of it there would be that moment when he finds a plan you know and that again came from several people he met a russian prisoner who gave him invaluable advice about what to do both before and after if if there isn't after getting out of this hellhole, what what do you do on the outside? But also just, again, keeping his eyes open, thinking all the time. He had a lot of ideas that he realized weren't going to work and, and eventually had this counterintuitive realization that because of the way the prisoners were held in this inner perimeter during the night and then this outer perimeter during the day and the way the guards moved back and forth, and they were constantly being counted all the time, accounted for, that the, the only way to do it would be to escape from the inner perimeter and then stay within the outer perimeter for three days while they searched until they were convinced that, ah, the guys must have died somewhere and we didn't notice. And then, only then, would it be possible to get out of the outer perimeter gate after they essentially stopped looking for you. And that's just, again, that would be a beautiful thing to put in an action movie because it's so interesting and exciting but then how do you do that? How do you stay inside a camp with thousands of guards and, and trained dogs looking for you? And I don't know. Do we want to give spoilers here? Well, yeah, I, I you know, it's funny because I, I you know, you <laughs> I don't know. It would be a spoiler considering the title and the subtitle of this book. But uh, yeah. maybe we'll we'll leave the circumstances of, of Rudy and Alfred's escape to to let your readers be astonished themselves. Um, but maybe let's talk about the implications of the escape and, and how they how they relate to this other parallel story you tell of Goethe. Yes, and the, the parallel story of, of Goethe was really important to me. They, he and Rudy, she and Rudy grew up together in this tiny town. In, well, it wasn't a tiny, a small town in Slovakia. And, and he was two years older than her, which was a big difference back when you're 14 and 12. It was a big difference. And she <laughs> kind of had a crush on him and he liked her, but didn't think of her that way at that age. And so it's, it's kind of a lovely way to start when you meet them. But then at that same moment, the Nazis begin expanding their anti-Jewish laws beyond Germany into Slovakia. That happened right at the start of World War II, and all of the Jewish kids were expelled from schools. So they find themselves out of school at that 
at those young ages. And so her story was fascinating because when the Nazis began rounding up at first young men and sending them off to who knows where, but they claimed it was something to do with working for the war, doing your part for the war effort. Of course, Rudy and, and Goethe were separated at that point and had very different experiences over those next couple of years. But her story was was very, very useful because it allowed me to show another experience of this. And she had many twists and turns and close calls, living on, in disguise, slipping back and forth across borders, eventually joining a resistance movement, eventually being arrested by the Gestapo. So it showed another angle on the story. But also, this is just a this is useful as a storyteller that she had access to news. She could listen to not just Nazi sources of news, but maybe a BBC broadcast, something like that. And so it allowed me to present to the reader what was happening in the war without me jumping in as a narrator and saying it. That's just very useful. And then finally, what brings it all full circle, quite literally, is is then meeting again near the end of the war in Bratislava in Slovakia after Rudy had escaped and she, Goethe, was, was living there as well, still in hiding. And a friend of, the, of theirs said, you wouldn't believe who I just saw. So their story comes together again at the end in a way that if you put it in a Hollywood blockbuster, it would be just too much. You'd say, ah, they're trying to tie everything together. It's, <laughs> it's, you're going too far. But it's really what happened. Well, and, and moreover, there's this connection to Hungary and, and Rudy's escape has, uh, has essentially meant that there are hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews that don't suffer the same fate as so many people that he's seen. Yes. And that was very, I mean, clearly his goal. It wasn't just something that happened. He did get enough snippets of news to know that the Nazis had invaded Hungary. He could see what was happening within the camp. They were building literally building railroad tracks up to the crematorium buildings with the gas chambers in it for the Hungarian Jews. And he could figure that out from within the camp. And that is exactly when he escaped. And that news got out, although he always felt too slowly, much too slowly. But it did reach the Western media, the newspapers in London and then Washington. And you could read the articles in the New York Times. They never mentioned his name. No one knew his name at that time. But you can see that ah, this came from, it could only have come from Rudy and Alfred and their report that they made. It describes eyewitness accounts. And that put pressure on, in turn, President Roosevelt and Churchill to turn to the Hungarians and say, we're going to hold you accountable. If this is true, we're going to hold you accountable for this. And at that point, luckily for the Jews who were still alive in Hungary, had the last really big population of Jews that were still alive because the Nazis had already started deporting them. But the Allies were winning the war at that point. And not only that, already bombing Budapest and oil plants, things like that. And so it was clear. It was clear to the Hungarian rulers who was going to win this war. And they were, of course, afraid of Hitler. But at that point, they were they, they realized they maybe should be more afraid of the, the U.S. Air Force. you know. And so that, of course... I don't want to be too cynical about it, but that, of course, had a, had a big part in their decision to to stop the deportation. But you can easily put Rudy in that picture, and that if he ha he and Alfred hadn't done what they did exactly when they did it, that piece of the puzzle would have been missing. And historians do think they saved about two hundred thousand lives. Rudy himself um, passed away in two thousand six, so so you could not speak to him in writing this story. But you did speak to one of his colleagues at the University of British Columbia. Why why was that conversation so important to the conclusion of this book? Yes, I had 
poking around and finding people who who knew him that was that was that's always important to me but that in that in particular because i saw that this fellow professor from canada and rudy went on to have a very long rich complex life i i mean my story ends when he's 20 you had a long way to go but but i found that this guy had not only known rudy but had done a lot of talks with him and they were both holocaust survivors and did a lot of education and talks to at schools so really I, what i wanted to know was what did rudy say at the end of his talks what was his takeaway what did he say all right and finally here's what i want you to think as you go back to your lives because i thought that would be a nice way to end this doesn't matter what i think you know in the end I, this is about him not me i want i want to tell the readers what he what was his takeaway because he used every opportunity he could to tell his story and to challenge holocaust deniers and, and but mostly just to, to educate young people and this dr krell this man i talked to said almost gruffly said rudy didn't do that he didn't do that he didn't do your work for you that was the exact quote he would say i told you the story it's all in the story and that you know what to do and really trust the people who had heard, the young people who had heard the story, that yes, they would know what to do. And so that is how I end. That's literally how I end the book with that little anecdote and those words, because it's exactly what he, Rudy, would have would have wanted as that closing message. For all Rudy talked about and wrote about what he lived through, was there anything you really wish you could have learned about his story or 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 would have wanted to ask him if he had still been alive? That's a great question. There are always little details, always little details that I that I love to ask on those occasions when I, I'm able to talk to someone in a, in a huge piece of history. I did a book about Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. And that's, it has to be about that time or sooner, you know, to to really be able to communicate with the people who did this. And yeah, so I, but it's always tiny details. And Rudy did a, so many interviews. He did these long five hour oral histories, which are wonderful. And they're all online. Anyone can find them. So there are lots of details, but I always look for those little tiny things, those little cinematic details that, that bring the story to life. I would have loved to know even more about him as a young kid, as a young teenager. Now, I probably wouldn't have ended up using most of it because I start with him at 17. I literally start on the day he leaves home on this quest to fight for the Allies, and he ends up doing so, fighting Hitler, but in a way he, obviously not in the way he could have ever expected. So a little more of those early stories are always great. I always end up writing too much of that and then just pairing it back to just hopefully a few sample glimpses that give you the, the character. I was also lucky with with Goethe, who, who wrote extensively, she was much, much less famous. He probably couldn't even, well, I, I don't think anyone necessarily had known her story beyond her family, but she wrote memoirs for that reason. She said, wow, I'm getting up there. I wanna, I wanna write all this stuff down. And she also did many, many oral histories. She died during the pandemic, actually. She lived a very long life and I was able to talk with her daughter, but she filled in some of those things I would have wanted to ask Rudy. Like for instance, when they met again, in the summer of 1944. So the war was still going on and they met again. And she described that in much more and much richer detail than he did. It was such an important moment in both their lives, but for her, she really, she couldn't sleep the night before. You know, she asked her, her boss if she could get off work early to go. They were met by the river 
and and she had this image of of, of a Hollywood style falling into each other's arms kind of a thing. She was 17 at that point. He's 19. And it wasn't like that at all. He was very stiff and reserved. And of course, he was still the same person, but had changed, not just physically, but so badly scarred by what he had lived through. And her descriptions of those moments were priceless. Without those, I think that that part of the story would have really been lacking. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, it's, it's also interesting to think about your writing this story having also been the person that's written about a completely different but very related part of the war, which is the the J. Robert Oppenheimer story and uh, and and kind of connecting those two things in your mind as as you're writing this much later book. Yes. And there's, of course, endless stories to be told from that from that time period, World War Two. And 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 yeah, the book you're referring to is called Bomb, and it's about the making of the atomic bomb. But what got me into that especially was the the spy stories is, is really what hooked me on that and the incredible spy stories that take place inside of the Manhattan Project. And so, yeah, very different part. There's always some overlaps, but but yeah, very different part of World War II. But similar in the same in the same way, in the, at least in the sense that I'm trying to create this page-turning narrative, this, this in that case, a spy thriller, but something that really hooks you that I know because from I always can never forget my textbook writing days. <laughs> Kids will never let me forget it. So I know that this is all the stuff that we really want them to know. So then the question is, how do you how do you turn it into a story? Do, do you feel like uh, this, this career of writing narrative nonfiction is in some way atoning for your career as a, uh, as a history book writer? That's exactly my goal. But I also feel like you have to be honest about it. So I like to, when I go to schools, it's always the first thing I say. And more and more, I don't know if it's anecdotal, but I think more and more schools are, are not using textbooks as heavily as we probably did, you know, in our back in our day, <laughs> which is a good thing. So hopefully, hopefully I am atoning for that. Yes. <laughs> Well, Steve Schenken, you've certainly atoned for it in my mind, and yeah, uh, now I'm going to go. Uh, I, I still have to read the back catalog that's on my daughter's bookshelf. All right, okay, we can. Uh, I'll wait here, and you can come back when when you're done, and we'll we'll speak again. Steve Schenken's latest book is called Impossible Escape, A True Story of Survival and Heroism in Nazi Europe. Schenken, who lives in Saratoga Springs, is the author of numerous other books for mainly young adults, plus the author and illustrator of several graphic novels. And way back when, he was a writer for history textbooks that you or your kids may have disliked. You can see photos from his hike through Poland and Slovakia following the footsteps of Rudy Verba at ncpr.org northward. That takes us to the end of another edition of Northwards. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Mitch Tyke. If you'd like to listen back to any of our previous episodes or get in touch with us, you can do that by surfing on over to ncpr.org Northwards. Now, here is the amazing Ethan Shanty to tell you more about the people who bring you this podcast. Northwards is an NCPR podcast production. The show is written, edited, and produced by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Caitlin Kelly handles our social media, Bill Hanel is our digital director, and Doyle Dean is our production manager. Music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.